Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast. And I'm in conversation today with Malcolm Doney, and we're going to be talking about the book we've chosen as this month's book club title. And the book is Aikenfield by Ronald Blythe. And as you say in your introduction, Malcolm, it's a book that's quite hard to categorise. But I wonder for anyone who hasn't read it or doesn't know about it, could you start by just sort of telling us something about the book, what it's about? Okay, so uh, Ronald Blythe uh, lived in Suffolk and... Aikenfield was taken at a time in 1967 when he was living in a village called Debbage and Charlesfield, the two villages linked together. And he talked to the people who lived around him about life in this rural setting. Uh, and he talked to about 50 people with a range of uh, backgrounds, you know, so old timers who, who remembered the First World War even, and then youngsters who were just setting off in life in order to get a picture of what rural life was like then uh, and he called it Aikenfield he made a name up for it and that's basically uh, around an old Suffolk word for oak and hence its title. Mm. And I've I've read that he wanted it to be the poetry of the ordinary um, and he was looking to try and capture the uh, the voice of Suffolk and it was actually, it was a real landmark when it was published, wasn't it, in 1969? And it sold incredibly well in England and it became an O-level set text um, for people to study. And it was also big in America. Um, I read somewhere that there were enthusiastic reviews in 150 newspapers and magazines, including Time and Newsweek. And I just wonder, I mean, you've called it in your introduction, you said it's an exceptional book. Why do you think it had this extraordinary impact? And why was it quite so successful? Well, I think probably because it gave a voice to people who hadn't really had a voice before. And one of the great things about Ronald Blythe, or Ronnie as he was known to his friends, is that he had a he had a very good ear. He'd always been, you know, since he was a child, a listener and a watcher. And so the way he got these voices over really seemed very fresh and authentic. It's a bit unclear about how he gathered the information. I think he took notes mostly. Uh, and so in rewriting, he shaped the the voices, shaped uh, what people said and gave it a very particular kind of flavour, which was authentic because they were his neighbours. He knew how how life was and i think that freshness came over in a way maybe that some sort of more academic oral history didn't so he had the eye of the poet and the novelist which is why people remarkable people like john updike for yep. example loved it and 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 thought it was marvelous yes it's really interesting it's it's also it's um 
just structurally it's quite a mix you've got some sort of apparently just verbatim um you know accounts from the people he spoke to and then you know at various times you've got um him sort of setting the picture and and commenting on it but it's quite a sort of mix of those styles um but somehow that doesn't seem to be a barrier does it for for enjoying it yeah uh, it is great because it gives that sort of light and shade and in a sense um, I'm not sure that uh, Ronnie Blythe would ever think of himself as postmodern, but there was a kind of postmodernity about it, in yeah. that you know the the presence of the author, his uh, you know inv- involvement in the narrative, uh, so you were aware that he was there. It wasn't simply he wasn't simply being a channel. Mm. I think that gives it an extra flavour. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I was reading it. I suspect you know this book very well, but I was reading it for the first time for this podcast. And the most, I mean, the thing that really strikes me as a first read is that there's nothing remotely romantic about the picture of rural life that he paints. And some of it's really very rough, you know, the sort of poor housing and the long working hours for very little money and the constant hunger. I mean, you quote in your piece, I think, Leonard, um, where you say, who says, our food was apples, potatoes, swede and bread, and we drank our tea without milk or sugar. And water had to be fetched from the foot of the hill nearly a mile away. And drink all you can at school, we were told. There was a tap at school. You'd see the boys and girls filling themselves up like camels. I have to admit, I was quite shocked by some of this. And I wonder um, how it fits in with your picture of life in Suffolk today, which I imagine is very different. Yes, it, it, it is. But quite interestingly, I um, I buried somebody in our village last week, who's 94 years old, and talking to his wife and to his family, uh, it was very Aikenfield. So, you know, they, they, these were people who'd lived generation upon generation in the village of Blytheborough and around it and never really much strayed from the place and life was hard Um, the water was poor the diet was poor uh, and uh, yes it wasn't this uh, you know this romantic vision of you know whole grain life that we it's not like the Hovis ad or whatever, you know, it's that it was tough. Yeah. Uh, yes. But it was real. And uh, uh, yeah, the first time I, I read Aikenfield, my my experience was the same. I'm thinking, gosh, uh, uh, I've traveled quite a lot um, to countries in the developing world and, and it felt a bit like that. Mm, mm. Well water and um, what you could gather from the land and so on. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I mean, just, you know, slightly randomly, but the, the, the what happened to the older people? There's one woman, I can't remember who is describing it, but she's saying that, you know, people, older members of the family weren't treated well. They were kind of shoved in a corner. And, you know, I even visited somebody who was kept in a cupboard. Now, I mm. don't know how literally we're supposed to take that, but it was, you know, it was pretty sort of it was pretty basic. A lot of it, wasn't it? The, the sort of living that he is describing. Yeah, I mean. To be fair, though, I think that he was talking then to the older members of the community who were looking back yeah. uh, a bit, uh, and, you know, before the first, before the Second World War, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and in the thirties, as we know, it was it was difficult anyway. It was difficult actually if you were living in the city too. Mm. So, um, 
that wasn't a picture of life in 1967 when he was doing it. So there were as there was a reminiscent element. Yes. To, Yes, and some really shocking stories about the First World War and being, you know, what it must have been like for these, you know, farm boys who'd never been anywhere suddenly to find themselves um, on the battlefields. Um, I, I, you know, was really struck by that. You know, there's that description of the of the kind of when they're all running towards a marquee because they think it, you know, it makes them think of a village fate, and of course it's full of it's full of you know it's full of bodies, yeah. um, and yeah. the character whose whose story that is says. I, you know, I'd never seen a dead man before, and here I was looking at two or three hundred of them. Nobody mentioned this. I was very shocked. I thought mm. of Suffolk, and it seemed a happy place for the first time. And there's mm. a sort of heartbreaking poignancy in that, isn't there? There, there is. I mean, again, because they'd lived a very sheltered kind of life, they're aware of death, obviously, because that's one of the factors of country life. Is there's a lot of killing going on yeah. you know anything from rabbits to pigs to cows to sheep you're you're aware of that sort of thing but but that kind of human carnage would have been yeah yes and there was another irony too uh, now i don't think this is so much in Aikenfield, or i've read elsewhere too about how some of those early recruits from from rural villages who went off and joined the army during the first world war was the first time they'd actually got fed properly yes yes because uh, they had rations for the first time, and it was actually quite a liberation um, to some degree, certainly in the years when they were training. Yeah, yes. Yes, no, absolutely. So that's the other side to it. Um, and I wonder, too, again, um, from your point of view, knowing Suffolk very well, how much is how much does the landscape come across in his descriptions? Do you, I mean, I suppose another way of putting it is, could this be set anywhere else? Or does it feel to you as a Suffolk man, does it feel really strongly local to the area? Well, I have to confess that I'm not a Suffolk man. I'm a West London boy. So right. I'm born in Hounslow, but I've been here 14 years. Although one of the reasons I came was because of the landscape. So I, I think I think that um, th there are lots of correspondences within many other rural areas, I would say. But I think that there's something about Suffolk which was a bit more in a bubble than a number of other places. When you talk to people, you know, they they barely gone to Ipswich or Lowestoft, you know, let alone London or Cambridge or anywhere else. It was uh, people stayed within that that area. A lot. And I think one of the things that, that I don't know whether you're going to talk about that elsewhere, but the education seemed very poor. No oh, expectation. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes. And that seems fairly extraordinary in quite recent times, doesn't it? It's, it's very striking that um, people sort of tolerated school, but they didn't really. There's, there's a wonderful interview with a teacher who's really kind of quite exasperated, isn't she, by the situation? Mm. Because it's you know so disappointing to her that people just you know they come into school to get it over and done with until they don't have to come anymore <laughs> you know um, but they're not really engaging at all. Um, I mean, do you meet people who sort of who talk about that still that sort of education or does that feel a distant memory now? I think it's more of a distant memory. I think that it's the education, as far as I can see from here, is much more improved. And you are beginning to see, I think, already in Aikenfield with the younger generation who were were frustrated by the lack of opportunity 
and wanting to go. There's a, a lovely idea about going to find a, a different sky, which was something that they felt they needed to. They felt sort of circumscribed by yeah. the life. Yes. And some of his description of um, people is really evocative, isn't it? I mean, you you pick up one sentence um, in your introduction. You say, Bruce is thin and fair. His long, pale neck grows out of his leather jacket like an iris stylosa stem out of glossy, damp, dark mould, um, which is just sort of wonderfully um, descriptive. And I was just reading um, the other night, and I was really enjoying that bit where... Um, Hickey and Sam dance in the pub and there's mm. that moment before before they get up and dance and, and you sort of know it's going to happen but you've got to wait for the right moment and I just wonder um, how does he do it? What is it about his writing that is so evocative? I think it comes from a years and years of reading he told me once when I interviewed him that he, he was a boy on a bike who went around looking at churches and read and read. And uh, he said that writers were for him like uh, like F1 drivers or football players were to other kids. So those were his heroes. Right. And so he absorbed that because he never had any further education. He, you know, he just left school, but he ended up in a library and started drawing writers through. So, so he kind of absorbed it. He was sort of, you know, in the way that you are what you eat. He was mm. what he read. And he, he loved, of course, the, uh, the great poets like John Clare and George Herbert. And so he wrote poetry, very good poetry. So there was always that poetic element to what he was writing in the way he wrote. It wasn't, he was never a journalist, let's mm. say. Sure. And I'm just wondering who are the, I'm going to hesitate to call them characters, but who are the people um, in the book whose stories, who are the ones who really stay with you, um, the ones who you feel you, you know well? Well, I, I really loved the one, I think he was called um, Faulkner, maybe, who was a gardener at the big house. Mm. Story stayed with me, that whole idea of, um, and this was somebody who was a gardener at the, at, at the obviously the the big Mm. stately home but the gardeners were never to be able to be seen from the from the big house they were invisible um and that so, was extraordinary wasn't it yeah so so even if you had a job to do like taking a whole load of weeds to somewhere to the compost heap you had to maybe detour for half yeah. a mile in, in in order to do this job just so yeah. that the, the grand guests didn't see these yes. oiks yeah <laughs> wondering about i mean that's uh, you know that that has always struck me yeah yes and the other one that struck me was was the um was the young chap that was uh an intensive farmer mm. felt terribly mm. terribly guilty about it yes he sort of knew what he was doing was betraying his roots and betraying his ethics really yeah uh, and the way that he was treating the land and the way that he was treating animals but it was he didn't feel deeply enough about it to stop it. He, 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 again, he was somebody who was sort of channeled by his background and what was expected of him. And presumably this was in the sort of fairly early stages of intensive farming, um, mm. really. Um, yeah. Well, I, this was written at a time when, when when things were beginning to change, where 
people were, were uprooting a lot of the hedges, making bigger fields and beginning to use nitrates and you know, yes. other chemicals and pesticides and that kind of thing in order to grow more food more efficiently. And so efficiency was the thing. Yeah. I, that's another thing that makes the book so uh, important because it is it is a snapshot at that time when agriculture and the way it was done mm. was changing. So you had all these people who'd been brought up with Suffolk punches who were the the um the draft horses that yes. plowed the soil and uh, and you'd had you needed uh, many workers in order to till the land and do all the other stuff and pull the beets up and and now all you needed was a man on a tractor yes and whole industries disappearing like the the saddle maker who you know had been a master craftsman and suddenly you don't need you know harness harnesses for um for you know big working horses um mm. and it's sort of adapt or sink isn't it mm. um yeah which of course is is i mean it's not dissimilar to a lot of the challenges today they're just different ones mm. because that was another thing a sort of thread through the thing was was that despite the hardship people had a loyalty and a degree of how can i say that what was important is about how well they did the job Yes, yes. So how well you stacked the sheaves, how well you did this thing. So you took enormous pride in the craft of, of what yeah. you did, yes. even though you weren't getting paid enough for it and you yeah. were the breadline. Yeah. Um, that kind of sustained you some way. Yes, yes. And even if it wasn't noticed or appreciated, um, that was that came across very clearly. There's a sort of pride there, isn't there, in, in you know, good workmanship. Mm. What what did you get in the uh, as an impression of the sense of community? Because I think I expected it to be you know this great sense of you know all being a part of something, and I'm not sure I felt I'm actually felt it was quite sort of fractured in many ways socially. W was that your impression? Well you, well, you certainly got a very strong sense of the stratification of class mm. and how difficult it was to move from one to another, and there did seem to be a degree of suspicion about other people and um and their relative success or whatever mm. so people were watching everybody the, the whole time yeah um, yes and i was a bit surprised by that but that may be part of what happens when you start talking to people individually like that um that that, that people bring out some of those things and there's also a whole question to me about who was willing to talk and who, you know, and who he sought out as well, because, you know, there aren't many women in there, are there, for example. No. So it's a sort no. of it's obviously selective. And also he's presumably talking to the ones who who wanted to talk and there might have been others yes. with different perspectives. So it's yes, it's always going to be um, a bit of a patchwork. Mm. But when you start talking, when he starts talking to people about harvest and some of those other things and um there was a remarkable thing when somebody was saying, looking back and thinking it was hard, and then he said, "Oh yeah, but there was always the singing. The yes. singing was really very important, and, that, yeah. and you know what, what that meant to them. Yes, which was a, was a communal. Yes, yes, and that thing. was rather lovely, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and going back to um, the, the old guy that I buried uh, last week was. was um, that was a big thing for him. He learnt the piano accordion, and there was a, you, you'd go round to the pubs and you'd sing these old folk songs, and 
and new songs as well. But but that that kind of gathering together was something that yeah. happened a lot more on those yes. days. Um, now, Ronald Blythe was obviously very much a churchgoer and, and in fact, he was a lay reader and a columnist on the Church Times for many, many years. Um, and the church comes up quite regularly in Aikenfield in, in different guises and for good and ill. I wonder how you think the church fares. What sort of picture um, do you get of the church in Aikenfield? It's a bit absent, I thought, in the sense that it as, as something that was uh, hugely meaningful. To people um it it was there and you went to it you know on high days and holy days that but but it it wasn't something it wasn't glue no it's more like the weather it was just it was yeah. just yeah you lived with it um yeah. and you know there were good days and not such good days but yes it was interesting isn't it and this idea that everybody was massively um you know engaged in church going 50 years ago or whatever it just doesn't stack up to me reading this so well certainly not the church of england no uh, interestingly you know there is that other the sort of um the, the non uh the non-conformist churches yeah Certainly, in in the village where I am now, we have well, it's, it's it's like ruin now of a, a primitive Methodist church. But that that everybody says here was was where all the agricultural workers went, because again, because of the singing and because of the hellfire sermons, and it was a bit more exciting. Yes, um, and the Anglican church, and we have this huge one in Blythebridge, yes. known as the Cathedral of the Marshes. But you went there if you worked for the local baronet. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the so the estate workers were expected to go there. Yes, um, but if they were given half the chance, they'd mother they'd mother go down to the join in with the Methodists and, yeah. and Wesley hymns. Yes, um, I very much had the sense that um, we had a window here into another era altogether. Um, and as we said earlier, some of the stories go right back to sort of pre World War One. I wonder how you feel. Aikenfield speaks to readers in the 21st century. You know, how relatable is it to a reader today who's coming across it for the first time? My feeling is that, uh, as it was for you and it was for me, that it'll be a bit of a dash of cold water in the face because it's a wake-up call to how recently it was that we had this degree of poverty and hardship and you know and again back to that kind of enclosed class system and and the sort of way that 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 people were used really by those with as opposed to those who were without you know the whole idea of a tired accommodation and mm-hmm. and the, you know the, how dangerous it was to speak out again yeah. uh, or, or to vote labor or to do those kind of things and so i think that it's quite healthy for those of us like me who move from London out as incomers and you know, we love the big skies and the open spaces and things like that to realise that this has kind of been paid for over the years by lots of people working very hard. Mm. Very mm. And to remind us, I think, that economic well-being is quite... Uh, a vulnerable thing Mm, mm. we're not very far away from returning to those kind of things absolutely and particularly now with the 
pressures on on a lot of um, people's budgets. It just feel you realise quite how precarious life can be, um, really. Um, exactly, and with with the rise of kind of populism, um, where, where you know the big man, the man at the big in the big house, uh, is going to run things, and and people can't get lost in the wash; mm, they don't mm, count. Mm, yeah. But that's not to say, sorry, <laughs> so we don't want to get, uh, you know, too dystopian about this because there, there, there is there in here um, an enormous amount of life and vigour mm. uh, and interest and humanity mm. in Lakenfield, which, which is, is what stops it from dragging you down into some kind of terrible spiral. I, I agree. It's not a depressing read at all. It's it's a fascinating and intriguing and at times shocking read, but it's um but it's not, you know, it's not sort of gloomy, um, just sort of fascinating really. Um Ronald Blythe, obviously, he died at the beginning of this year at the age of a hundred, leaving an extensive body of work. I mean, do you think Aikenfield is still the the one he'll be most remembered for? I think so because it's kind of top of his CV, and they and 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 uh, Sir Peter Hall made the the film of it, which uh, is still there. You can still see and wor- worth seeing because it's a very a, a imaginative treatment. I was going to In ask way, if you'd seen it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I, I've seen it a couple of times, and it's it it kind of is an. Aikenfield of Aikenfield, right. in the sense that that what he's done is taken all these interviews and then turned it into a, a drama. So there are lots of threads. If you read the book, you will recognise some of the threads and even some of the quotes in the film. And in fact, uh, Ronald Blythe, in fact, plays the vicar. Uh-huh. So I think I think that that will be there. There was just I was there was a quote I, I found. Today, which I wanted to give you, which is Richard Maybe, the nature writer, who was a friend mm. of Ronald Blythe, who, who said this about Ronald Blythe. He said he had a watchful, curious, compassionate, unifying and gratefully amazed vision of life. I think it's certainly worth revisiting Ronald Blythe's Church Times columns, which I think were some of his best work, actually. Mm, mm, mm. Um it's almost like he, he tossed them off. I used, we used to love getting them in because they the, he's very low tech and they, he would type them on his on his manual typewriter, and um, he knew exactly how long they had to be, but it was slightly too long for a sheet of A four. So so often the the last line was written in in biro, um, you know, to fit on the end of the page, and of course he sent it through the post. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes, extraordinary. I hope somebody's kept all those manuscripts though, because they're. I think I'll have to look into that. Um, and that's that's a good note to to wrap up on on this now. So we've been discussing Aikenfield by Ronald Blythe, and you can read Malcolm's introductory essay and some questions for discussion in the Church Times and online. And finally, Malcolm, can you recommend something else you've read recently that you think our readers might enjoy? Yeah, it's a book called Still Life by Sarah Winman, and it gave me an enormous amount of joy. One of the other things that I am, apart from a writer and a priest, is that I'm an artist. I paint pictures. And um, 
this book is set both in Florence and the East End of London. I won't tell too much about it, but 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 art and colour and life, it it's uh, flourishes uh, in those places and the, and the connections between them. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I quite agree. It's a glorious book, um, a riot of colour and excitement and, and kind of and kind of joy. I think it's just a huge amount in it. I completely endorse that choice. Um, no, it's really excellent. And thank you for for um, recommending that to us. And I think on that note, we'll um, we'll call it a day. So thank you very much, Malcolm, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.